0: So the Parami that I would like to share some reflections on this evening is Panya, Panya Parami, or wisdom. Wisdom being the most uh, common and it's straightforward translation of this word. And just even the prospect for me of giving a talk on wisdom feels a little bit more daunting than trying to give a talk on, I don't know, uh, patience or something. Actually, patience is not easy to give a whole talk on. But, you know, wisdom sounds like it ought to be frightfully intelligent. And it may be the case that I'm not feeling frightfully intelligent. (laughs) Um, Because we have this association of wisdom with, the intellect and with thinking and in our culture those tend to go along with kind of status and power, Mm. often with the power of men in the past also, even though the goddess of wisdom in ancient Athens was female and uh, wisdom is often personified as as a feminine quality where it's personified, but it's sort of associated with academia. I happen to live in Oxford, where there are all these very daunting buildings and signs about, you know, lots of the lots of the different academic disciplines we have these days were once upon, known, once upon a time known as branches of philosophy, branches of the love of wisdom. So wisdom becomes this kind of onerous academic thing. And it goes along with you know, this, this kind of way of knowing, way of encountering the world gets a lot of kudos in our society and culture. So you get Nobel Prizes for brainy things. Um, and also some of the other paramis are kind of get... get um, rewarded societally, so generosity or philanthropy, although one could argue about the the differences between generosity and philanthropy, that gets lots of uh, honor and shout outs in terms of public recognition and courage, perhaps. You don't get a Nobel Prize for patience or a a Nobel Prize for renunciation. Yeah, so wisdom has the, some of these connotations with it. But then if we think about you know, what, what are the associations for us of wisdom, if we think about people we might have known in our lives, who we would rate as really wise people, we can think about what other qualities you associate them with or what is it that contributes to your perception of them as a wise person and for me, often a lot of these other paramis are, are there. So I don't think there's anybody I think of as wise who I don't also think of as kind, actually. Um, people tend to have um, you know qualities like patience and forbearance and uh, gentleness, generosity. So we can we quickly you know recognize that wisdom is a, a kind of it has an ethical quality to it one of the expressions or ways that enlightenment is dis- succinctly described is that it's the appropriate response to know the appropriate response so panya is is something different from mere knowledge or uh, information, erudition, it's a sort of understanding, the understanding, which is another word we could use for panya, understanding that liberates or heals suffering. And there's the well-known sutta, early discourse, in which the Buddha is wandering in the forest with the monks and he uh, asked the monks, "What?" Have, he picks up a handful of leaves from the ground and he asked the monks, are there more leaves in the forest or in my hand? And they said, there are infinitely more leaves in the forest than in the palm of your hand. And he said, well, in the same way, the things that I've known, that I know about, that I've known with direct knowing, as many as the law are very many like the leaves in the forest, but I haven't taught them because they 're irrelevant they 're irrelevant to what you 're really after they 're irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life or um, of the life of the life of flourishing the best life they're irrelevant to disentangling ourselves from suffering they 're irrelevant to peace and freedom, but the things that I have taught are like the leaves in the palm of my hand, and it's these things that you should really give your attention to, these things that really matter. So what is it that you really need to know that is the real territory of real wisdom? And he said it's to understand suffering, to understand how suffering arises, and how to let it go, and how to train ourselves to become proficient at letting it go. So his song of the Four Noble Truths, the Four Ennobling Truths. This is really the crux of what um, the territory of wisdom. And so that's a change change in priorities from how we usually uh, apply our intelligence. And it's a change in our relationship to suffering. Uh, Suffering is uh, (coughs) again the way that we translate this word dukkha which really means any uh, unwanted experience from the most trivial to the most major and in the container of a retreat we have this rich possibility of brushing up against all sorts of dukkha From frustration with the routine or the lack of routine or the lack of entertainment to not getting the sleep that we want, not getting the food that we want, bodies that don't play ball and sit beautifully comfortably in a lotus position all day and, you know, Noises, bodily noises and human noises around us that just prevent us from relaxing into that perfect calm that we're looking for. And so there can be, there's all sorts of mm, seemingly trivial bits of suffering that we encounter. But I also don't want to trivialise them because often when we encounter a, a kind of, you know, fairly banal or small uh, something that rubs up against us it can connect with or tap into some of our much more ingrained and painful patterns about things never working out for us or maybe uh, us not being good enough or uh, and I'm speaking for myself as well as you. It's not like I'm saying, you know, this is what happens to you. It doesn't happen here. I'm talking from, <laughs> this is how I feel. It's very easy to lapse into that. I just can't do this. I can't do it. Or I'm not good enough. Or, you know, everybody else is, is better than me. Or all those sorts of things. Whatever are, are sometimes we, call it, we talk about these as being sankharas. Um, habit patterns of the psyche, of the of the mind that um, yeah whatever's kind of deeply there and deeply painful so we brush up in this container and and outside too but what happens in the container is we're held still enough that we can start to get some different perspective on it it's like there's nowhere to run to (laughs) You can run to the tea station or the tree or up to your room and that's about it. So we're really, we're really here <laughs> in the midst of it all. And then we can see that our, our usual response to this is some kind of reactivity. So, and the forms that my reactivity takes, I don't know about you, but is that I'll kind of pick an argument with what's going on sometimes so and I'll start putting myself or the world or the other person to write. So I'll rearrange Gaia House in my mind or yeah. I'll, you know, tell my mother what I should have told her thirty years ago or um, you know, I'll start working out all the things that are wrong with me. Or I'll try to distract myself, and again here the opportunities for distraction are limited. But you know we can think of countless ways through food and phones and endless busyness and activity. It's turning on the telly or whatever we do that just kind of um, distracts us from being with this discomfort. Or we might just kind of collapse into ourself That's when, when none of the, those others have worked there's this kind of collapse into some kind of despair or hopelessness and what we're doing is we're just getting ourselves more and more deeply entangled in suffering so this loop of greed aversion and confusion just cycles around and around in itself so this is when the untrained mind encounters suffering. And often this, this looping around also um, manifests in the hindrances that we've spoken about. So these are kind of elaborations, if you like, of this pattern of greed, greed and aversion and confusion is to, we yeah, we get, the mind just gets overtaken by sense desire, the, the wish to get away from this into something nicer. Or by ill will, you know, finding out some, someone or something to blame, because if I can just figure that out and sort it, then this, will, this experience will go away. Or numbing out and dulling down, that's what we call It's traditionally called sloth and torpor, just kind of numbing out from our experience. Or just not being able to settle down, just becoming more and more agitated. Restlessness, restlessness and worry. Or doubt, where we just go into a kind of paralysis, the mind can't decide between options or can't decide on a a course of action. And in those kinds of states, we can't really see clearly, we can't really progress through the unfolding of these four things that the Buddha asked us to see. Mm. the, The famous simile is like, it's like the mind is a bowl of water in which we want to see things clearly, but the mind is either colored with some kind of colored dye that colors everything in the case of sense desire, it's like everything takes on that. Well, i just got to have that cup of coffee and then I'll be able to, you know, deal with this. Or then I can approach this. But the most important thing is that I get my cup of coffee first. Or uh, we feel all turbulent. So water, like boiling water is when we feel ill will or when we feel um, dull or whatever it's as if the water's got a thick coating of algae on the top of it or restlessness is like having this water that we want to see clearly in just tossed around by the wind so the surface is all ruffled up or doubt is like having the water full of mud and maybe the water's put in a dark cupboard and you, you really can't see anything in it So those are all, one of the reasons that they're called hindrances or um, something, veiling factors is what it literally means, veiling things, or obscurations, is that they stop us seeing clearly, they're impediments to wisdom. And yet knowing their presence, knowing them as they're arising, is already the arising of wisdom. So there's the, the proverb that the fool that knows they're a fool are, is already wise. The, conf- the mind that recognizes confusion as confusion or what, that which recognizes confusion as confusion is wisdom, it's clear seeing. So this is a ta- the task of mindfulness. Some of you who are familiar with the, the teaching on the foundations of mindfulness, this is what we're asked to do in relation to the hindrances is to just see them clearly. And uh, mindfulness is often paired with wisdom. So there's this word Satipanya. There's a, even a place in a retreat called Satipanya, Bhante Bodhidharma's home, some of you may know mindfulness and wisdom its kind of you can't you don't really get panya without sati and you don't really get good sati without some panya yeah. so to 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 see when the mind is not seeing clearly already this is this is the beginning of wisdom and then what is the task there the task is to let the mind be let the mind calm down so not to stir it up some more with our stories and our reactions to the reactions to the reactions and so on and it's a bit like if you want the water in a bowl to clarify or in a pond you stop stirring it and you just have to let the water and the sediment settle and so here we've got cantiparami patients really operating already and I loved the phrase that Sumedha shared yesterday evening, creating a sanctuary for seeing. Uh, so just our patience and our willingness to be steady with, steady with discomfort, steady with difficulty, rather than uh, feed our reactive patterns, we begin to create this, this sanctuary for seeing. And so, this is the first of these four ennobling truths, um, which are not kind of mathematical formulae or philosophical propositions. I think sometimes, again, that the kind of wisdom mind in the Oxford University sense, wisdom mind would like to think that you know, you could just master these four equations and that's the end of the job, job done. But actually they're not just formulae, they are invitations to a task, to do something. And the task in relation to suffering is to actually recognize suffering as suffering, to closely contemplate it and fully understand it. Which means being willing to stand near it or even underneath it. It's an interesting play on the word to understand. Because as Nathan said, you can't let go of something until you've really met it. And if you're constantly keeping, keeping it away, you're kind of stuck to it to that extent. So, you know, all these things that we encounter, like frustration, disappointment, hurt, fear, worry regret envy grief jealousy uh, the the encouragement and the invitation is to be willing to come closer to them and to start to really understand them and you know, there's still a place in this for wise reflection to look at them through through these dharma lenses, if you like, to kind of use the categories that the Buddha really carefully devised and offered to, to frame our experience as a skillful way of looking at it. There's also a place, you know, I talked about running, running away from things, running into other things. There's also a place for a kind of wise avoidance to say, i can 't come any closer to to this right now, or actually, I need some time out from this right now, but that 's a considered attuned response rather than just a reactivity. Yeah. You have to feel out the difference in that, so not you know we can 't take on everything all at once, but we just begin to um, work the edges of what we can what we can uh, skillfully hang out with and inquire into and also this sense of implosion sometimes it's like it's just all too much well then can we bring some self-care into the equation into the picture and actually rather than being the imploding self be the self who's caring for the imploding self and I'm using all these words being a self, you know, provisionally, and I'll get to that bit hopefully, if I don't talk too much and run out of time. Um, you know so so I, when I say we really need to come face to face with and stand under our suffering, it's yes and, you know, with some discernment, with some care but then we so we we if we can be steady enough with that, then there's an opportunity to open into the second truth, the second in the handful of leaves, which is to, the second task invitation is to understand the way that the co-arising of Dukkha and Tanha occur. So the co-arising of suffering and the experience of what, I love Nathan's translation of Tanha as demanding or traditionally craving, how those two things arise together in our experience. So this craving or demanding takes the form of wanting to get rid of things, it takes the form of wanting to get more things, maybe to get some sense gratification, maybe it's something that's not to do with the sense, but it's about getting or getting rid of that push and pull against experience, which when we really sit in it and feel it, it hurts. You know, that is, that is th- where the suffering is. That's what's calling out for relief is the craving itself, this demanding. And we can we can discuss you know, at, which comes first. Is is does dukkha or this is a bit of we can go into a sort of Buddhist philosophical debate. Does D- dukkha arise because of craving or does is craving what arises as respon- as the response to Dukkha. And I would say the best I can come to is it's like a chicken and an egg. You know, <laughs> which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know, but you don't get eggs without chickens and you don't get chickens without eggs. And anywhere that you look in your experience with Dukkha, there's some <laughs> kind of Tanha going on, Mostly. So there's there's a certain amount of dukkha of suffering that is inherent in just having a human body certain amount of at least a certain amount of unpleasant experience that's going to arise and then how much dukkha is optional on top of that is an ever ever enlarging exploration and it's our task to find out just how much is really optional and there's more that's optional than we than we know and we think. So when we're experiencing dukkha to see what is the what where is the, the Sumedha's beautiful image from Imagine Sumedha It's like, where is this happening? And where can this happen? So this is our task in relation to this is to soften and to release. You know, we maybe we can't release straight away but we can start to soften because we feel in our direct experience that relationship between the, the demanding the pressure of that demanding and the experience of suffering so if you do like equations I love the equation from Shinzen Young which says suffering equals pain times resistance <laughs> 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 yeah And then the amazing thing is, what does it feel like to do that, when that happens? Uh, So the third, the third in the handful of leaves is to realise, to experience, to actually experience, taste and appreciate the relief of the ending of craving. That uh, if you like, the satisfaction of something, craving falling away. You know, all cravings seek their own ending. It's just that we, f- we, we look for the wrong way to bring them to an end. Uh, and actually being, being asked to slow down on retreat gives us wonderful opportunity to actually be slow enough to notice The ending of things to notice the fading away of um, a feeling like I I really want and I really need X how many things have we thought we really really needed in one moment on the retreat and then actually they haven't manifested and actually (laughs) we've completely forgotten about it you know but when we when we're rushing along We're on to the next thing. Mostly the momentum of our lives is we just roll on to the next thing, the next thing, and we don't notice these moments of relief, these moments of satisfaction so much. So this is a perspective on on nibbana or on release that I personally really, really like. The idea that actually we are having mini-nibbanas all the time, that we just don't notice them. Yeah. Or, and if we didn't have these mini nibbanas, this relief, we'd be constantly winding ourselves tighter and tighter and you just wouldn't function. So maybe a task is actually to notice these moments of the falling away of resistance, the falling away of stress, the falling away of demanding. And what does that actually feel like? You know, Have you had moments of unbidden contentment or unbidden satisfaction, unbidden pleasure that have just arisen. And to really notice those and um, learn from them, really, about what, what really is peace and satisfaction. So... Then the fourth task is to understand and cultivate in a way which makes this realization of the unbinding, the unwinding of the disentangling of suffering more and more an ongoing part of our lived experience through the cultivation of such things as uh, a wise view or right view, the right perspective on things, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration or samadhi. And I'm not going to walk you through the whole Eightfold Path, don't worry. But you know, to to really um, use this wonderful, wonderful map that the Buddha gave us to cultivate our mind in such a way that actually this experience of the of suffering, undoing itself, becomes a reality for us and an endlessly unfolding possibility. So, Panya, wisdom, is about understanding and making an effort with these four things. And so we can see there's lots of room for support for it from virya, from effort or energy, and from Aditana, resolve. so that's one one way that we could define or consider Panya. Another way that we can consider Panya is about being able to discern between what's skillful and unskillful, and of course that overlaps with everything that I've just said but it's you know another another way we could frame it um, to really look at what is wholesome and beneficial what's what's in the service of genuine long term happiness and what's just in the service of Uh, short-term gratification and uh, we've heard some wonderful teaching around that already Um, and we have you know we don't have to the great thing with all this is we don't have to work from scratch we don't have to figure things out from scratch because we've been given these wonderful roadmaps and and guidelines and sort of matrices of, of things to consider so the precepts for example you know, already we, we, we've got this framework that can help steer us to behaviours that are actually for our long-term happiness and benefit and for the long-term happiness and benefit of others. And I really like, the, I haven't thought or heard of that before, but the idea of them being like road bumps in the road. It's like things to just check ourselves with. Oh, yeah. Uh, I need to take a pause here or I need to consider this. If I'm really interested in peace of mind, if I'm interested in safety, if I'm interested in giving the gift of safety to others, I'm interested in, I used to, when I was a child and kind of figuring out, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, sort of because I was a bit into maths and things, I thought, well, if I, if, so long as the net amount of happiness in the world increases as the result of what I've done... And that, that, that's 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 kind of good enough. And uh, yeah, so if if we some kind of aspiration like that is with us, um, yeah. So these are these are really good things to adopt. And again, the paramis are a wonderful you know set of aspirations to reflect on. Or as part of, as Nathan was speaking about metta, he talked about the four Brahma-viharas, these ways of relating in life. Uh, So kindness manifesting as compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. So all these are really worth... Uh, holding in mind as kind of guiding lights and things that we reflect on and in a way they're all doing the same thing they're all training the mind in service of non-greed and non-hatred and non-delusion and that may sound kind of obvious and, and uh, a bit banal but there's so many... C- uh, um, contradictory messages that are coming to us all the time from all around us. Um, you know, every, everything out out there is designed to make us consume, or to make us angry, or to make us worry, or to, and, and I'm not saying there aren't things to be angry and worry about, but actually... Uh, we, our anger and worry take a lot of energy and we really need to be careful how we expend them um, uh, expending them where they're useful so that just because things are condoned socially or socially acceptable they're not necessarily skillful and it may not be hip and trendy to you know, reflect on the map of the Paramese but actually it's a lot more useful than a lot of the encouragements that we're going to have out there Mm -hmm. so you know i'm i'm personally really relieved at the encouragement to be off my phone and offline while i'm here because i just recognize what a uh, detrimental effect that has on well-being and on so many of my aspirations i mean maybe if you only use your devices to to locate and listen to really wholesome things then you know that's wonderful but just if you think of the the kind of uh, quality of speech and of dialogue that happens in most of the media and even in the news and things one's kind of macerating in a a sense of grievance in the sense of maybe oversimplification um, You know, maybe a a really distorted sense of what are the important things to pay attention to, what's not important to pay attention to. So to to really elevate some of these traditional, um, maybe unsexy maps in one's mind is a really, really valuable thing to do and really reflect on what is genuinely, what do I really want to invest my energy in and what do I not want to invest my energy in. And it said that one of the the causes for the arising of wisdom is the association with good people and with good teachings. It really matters who and what we hang out with. So, uh, restraining or avoiding foolish influences. So I'm sure, I hope you'll all agree that coming and spending a week here, even if it doesn't always feel like the most enjoyable or the most uh, fruitful week of our life is is a lot better than spending a week you know, watching Netflix or Love Island or whatever. <laughs> I don't actually watch Love Island. I'm talking from I'm talking from total prejudice here. But that, I was like, what's the thing that's what's the pits that I could think of? <laughs> and apologies if you're a Love Island fan. But, um, you know there's so many foolish influences around us that are just kind of normalized in our society it's kind of mind-boggling yeah anyway um yeah so then the third thing that i want to say about panya and i'm trying to try and be fairly succinct here is that this this whole business of retraining the reactive habits of mind um can seem like a lot of heavy lifting a really a lot of heavy lifting but actually in the process of practice we can start to refine our view or refine our way of seeing things that actually things gradually become lighter so there's a positive feedback loop in all of this because Thir- another, or th- well, third way of looking at Panya that I wanted to name is really the understanding of the three characteristics of conditioned existence. So, understanding, deeply, deeply understanding impermanence, deeply understanding Dukkha, which we've talked about in the context of these four tasks or truths, and deeply understanding anatta, or the not-self nature of things, the emptiness of self. So when we can hold steady and contemplate, we begin to see that everything is always changing. It may change more slowly than we want it to, but it's still always changing all the time. So i was sitting here saying this now. I just uh, the other two were laughing at me at tea time because I said, I like, "I'm always cold. Why am I always cold?" And they said, "You're not always cold." <laughs> so, so is it? But if things feel so permanent when they're happening, it's like I've I'm been cold all day, and I'm always going to be cold. And actually, I'm quite warm now. So um, <laughs> you know. But we, things feel so believable, but actually when we're honest about our experience, when we really look at it closely, it's changing all the time. Yeah. And if we think about it and analyze it, y- even things that have a relatively you know, stable existence, they, they change. Uh, they come to an end. And this is both Both, why we feel dukkha, because we we things don't last in the way that we want them to. Uh, The whatever good space or comfortable space in we're in suddenly gets interrupted. The one moment our body was perfectly comfortable, the next moment it ceases to be comfortable. Mm. The things and the people that we have we love. they, They don't last, we don't last. So that's why, you know, this is why we experience dukkha, because we tend to seek a kind of lasting satisfaction or security in things that can't give it to us. We want them to be... Uh, more permanent than they actually are it's not that we should never find happiness in anything but just that we can't expect it if our happiness is dependent on expecting something not to change it's on a unstable ground and one of the other ways of describing dukkha is it's like rope burn it's when you're trying to hold on to something that's just slipping through your hands or when you're leaning on something that collapses So Anicca uh, is, is the condition for Dukkha to arise, but it's also the reason that there's a relief from Dukkha. Yeah. So how many moods or mind states have we inhabited over the last two or three days uh, that have gone, <laughs> you know? And we use this as a reflection often we say things like this too shall pass and sometimes that's a wisdom reflection sometimes it's uh just a cloak for our aversion and this is something we can check out experientially but everything is a process so i think this is what you know life is a process, and language is what crystallizes it. The mind crystallizes it. The mind tries to well it perceives and it labels, it simplifies, it categorizes, it wants to define, we want to do this in order to communicate with each other, which has certain functions, but it traps us in this sense of solidity of things that aren't actually so solid.. Yeah. So, in a way, langu- language crystallizes experience, but contemplation, in a way, re that crystallization. You know. We, we can sense experience more directly than through. Um, or. yeah, more, more fluidly than through our language. And. Mm, and this, this, actually, the result of this or the, the consequence, the logical consequence of this or the concomitant of this is, is anatta or the not-self nature of things. So when we really, really look, this self who is suffering so much, uh, where is it? Yeah. So where... Do we find a solid unchanging self so we can you know we talk and our language slides around from talking as if I am I am this body or I am the owner of this body or I'm the person knowing that I'm the owner of this body and so on but these these locations of self slip and slide around and as we investigate our experience closely with wisdom, I can see that there's, there's no jaya independent of the experience that I'm having now. Uh, even to say I'm having the experience is a, is a convention. A, I mean, it's a useful form of speech. I don't want to say it's something else is having the experience. <laughs> but... There's an experiencing here which I'm experiencing as Jaya and you're experiencing as Jaya too but your experience of Jaya is different from my experience of Jaya and where's the real Jaya? You know. Um, Everything is, is a conditioned arising and so whatever I'm reacting to or in a difficult or suffering relationship with is also a conditioned arising that has no... Uh, solid existence independent of my relationship with it or my reaction to it so actually this liberating wisdom or insight sees eventually and piece by piece and gradually as we as we unravel this experience that what we're struggling with is a mirage and this is what's really liberating this is really the the fruit of wisdom so, in the later Buddhist tradition, this is more spoken of in terms of emptiness, but really this is implicit from the, right from the beginning of the Buddha's teaching, this sense that there is actually, when we really see with clarity, we're fighting with mirages, and it's our fighting that solidifies and reifies these mirages. Oh there's lots more I was going to say about that but you've got the idea I hope mm-hmm. and i um, sure we can continue to uh, un- un- unpick this over the next few days but just a, a few closing thoughts really is that because one of the questions that comes up so much over and over again in all our practice is what what should be our relationship to our thinking mind, you know, and when is a bit of thought in my meditation okay, and when is it an interruption to my meditation, and, um, you know, one of the things to ref- that reflecting all this, on all this, it, it really, we really need to understand that our untrained mind is full of booby traps, you know, it's pr- it's prone to these obscurations it's prone to the distortions of perception that's a whole other possible talk of you know what the way that we see solidity where there's no solidity we see self where there's no self we see things as permanent when they're not permanent we see things as inherently satisfying when they're not inherently satisfying and so the mind is very often mostly in these kinds of distortions of perceptions. And then from this place, we try to think our way out of suffering when it arises. And sometimes, yes, a bit of wise reflection is helpful, but more often what we're needing to train ourselves in and what we have the opportunity to do here is to change our relationship to thought, to be able to observe the thinking process rather than believe it all and to investigate our experience as a whole. So Joseph Goldstein, who I regard as one of my teachers, he says that in meditation nothing, no thing is worth thinking about. Uh, that's a big renunciation. And maybe we do our renunciations piece by piece, but it's really worth exploring that because what is driving our thinking? So maybe I'll sort of say a bit more about that tomorrow morning, but I can, uh, and I've probably, I think I have in past Dharma talks talked about, I mean, the amount of time I've wasted on retreats thinking about, things and projects, and honestly, uh, it's not a good investment uh, of our energy and our time. Many, many of the ways that we spend our retreats thinking about our projects. and even thinking, thinking to try to, and this is, you know, again, I don't want to keep you longer, So, but so much of our thinking is about trying to, mm, it's about ourself, and often about ourself in, am I okay, am I good enough, and all those things, all those ways in <coughs> which we simply don't feel good enough, and again we're trying to repair a mirage, we're trying to repair a a mirage so it's like we and and this is not to discount the difficulty of self-aversion or self-judgment but really the the, The appropriate response when this is arising is kindness. It's not trying to think our way to a better self or to fix ourself. So the Buddha said, am I okay? Am I not okay? Am I good enough? He said this is this is unwise reflection. Wise reflection is to investigate this is suffering. This is suffering arising. This is suffering releasing. And this is how to cultivate the path. And to the extent that we've seen this to be true, we have to keep practicing it. It's like you have an insight and you have to practice your insight. And I can can honestly say with my, I first encountered this practice nearly 40 years ago. And if you don't use it, you lose it and I've used it and I've not used it and I you know I've, if I'd used it if I hadn't lost some of it I'd be floating on a lotus by now <laughs> but if you don't use it you lose it because the momentum of delusion is so powerful so you we hear these teachings we reflect on them and then we need to apply them and we need to keep applying them and that way is the way to, f- to freedom. That is how we uh, perfect our wisdom. So this also requires a lot of self-forgiveness for the way that we don't do our path like this, we do our path like this. And, uh, but we're here and we have this wonderful opportunity together and the conditions are good enough to engage with the practice. So, thank you for being part of that. Mm. So, let's just sit for a moment.